Stanford University. And the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Everybody's talking about how terribly important innovation is. Um, people are defining innovation. I think um, the uh, best taxonomy of innovation I've seen is a paper that's about five years old now. Um, if you're curious about, about uh, breaking innovation down into its, into its components, there's a paper called Darwin and the Demon um, by Jeffrey Moore, which is essentially a taxonomy of innovation. And it tells you, um, it, it describes and breaks innovation down into topics like um, service innovation, business process innovation, product innovation, and so on. And the fundamental message, you might imagine, is the type of innovation you work on is less important than the fact that you're really, really good at that type of innovation and that it's consistent with your company's key business and strategic initiatives, right? Um, people tend to think of Apple as the sort of, uh, you know, sort of the pinnacle of innovation. Arguably, they're just one type of innovation, and that is, and that is product innovation. So everybody's talking about what innovation is. Um, it's always good to start with, with definitions. For the purpose of this discussion, innovation is creation resulting from study and experimentation. And I want to make a distinction here. If you come up with a cute idea, you put it on a wiki, you throw it in a, in a virtual suggestion box somewhere, it might be very creative, it might be cute, it might be clever, but it's not innovation. Uh, for, for legitimate innovation, you need some sort of instantiation of the idea, whether it's a sketch or a storyboard related to some new service you're thinking of, or a simple prototype of, of, of what you've created, or a physical layout of some new space that you're thinking about. You need to have some sort of instantiation for your creative idea in order for, um, to actually foster innovation. Um, what I want to talk about is, um, over the next hour, and what I want to hear from you about when I introduce some of the ideas, is some specific methods to foster a culture of innovation in your organization. That is, I want to talk about the how rather than the what or the, or the why. Um, first, let me just give you one background slide. I'm director of technology strategy at IDEO. We are a, just so that you understand where I'm coming from and what my perspective is, we're a professional services firm, um, about 20 years old now. I joined actually when the company was, had, had just uh, been created as a merger, as a result of a merger with two other, three other firms. And um, our exclusive mission statement is that we help our clients to innovate as a professional services firm. And we do that by taking a human-centered approach to design of products and services and experiences. People pay us to do three things. People pay us to gain insights into populations of stakeholders. They might be internal people at an organization. They might be um, external customers. Uh, for example, one of my projects now has to do with better understanding the needs of home PC users in China. All right? Second, people pay us to visualize solutions, opportunities and solutions, based on the inspiration that comes from that field research. And third, people pay us to help them redesign their organization using methods of design thinking to help them foster more sustainable uh, cultures of innovation. All right? So what in, in preparing this, what David and I agreed would be most interesting are to highlight some of the methods of what we like to call design thinking and the power of design thinking to drive innovation in an organization. Okay. What's the big idea with design thinking? There are any number of ways to innovate. There are any number of ways to be creative. One way to do that is to look at some of the most creative professions in the world that are applied. Okay? Look at advertising, look at architecture, look at industrial design, and ask yourself, what are some of the mental constructs that these people have? How do they think? How do they, how do they experience the world? 
Um, and then to roll those approaches, those behaviors that some of the most creative people have into a set of principles uh, that we call design thinking. And that's what I want to talk about to you uh, this afternoon. Um, what's design thinking all about? Design thinking is about creating the right kind of interdisciplinary teams of what we call T-shaped people. We'll get to that in a minute. That's one of the key points that I want to make this morning. And the second key thing that I want to emphasize is the second area around design set thinking, which is to um, observe to become inspired um, and to, um, uh, and to, and to um, synthesize observations, to come up with actionable observations or um, actionable opportunities. Um, the third principle of design thinking is to use your inspiration gained from the field to visualize new opportunities. And the fourth is to make appropriate use of prototypes, and I'm going to define prototype for you, to help drive forward the innovation process. Um, so we'll go into each of these in detail, but I want to make a very key point here, and I think it was mentioned in the, in the blurb that summarizes this talk. What's the subtext here? Okay, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about how to be creative, how to be innovative up here. The subtext here is innovation is absolutely not some innate talent that people either have or they don't. That's this old archaic way of thinking about innovation and creativity, and I urge you to reject it. I completely reject that, 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 uh, that, that notion. Innovation is absolutely a learnable skill. As with any other skill, like playing piano or, or, or learning mathematics, different people have different, appear to have different levels of innate aptitudes towards creativity. Okay? I know a guy who's a VC and he has like a, a, a new idea, and it's a pretty good idea like every eight minutes. You know, I call it the Carter timer, because you know, this guy Carter has these new ideas constantly. That's great. Um, the key point I want to make is anyone can learn uh, the team-based sport of innovation. Um, have any of you worked with advertising firms? There's this, there's this old archaic notion in many advertising firms, especially if you like watch Mad Men or something like that, still based on this, where the term creative is a noun. Have you guys run into this? They use the word creatives to describe these people in, in back rooms in Madison Avenue that you never really meet. They've got weird shoes and messed up hair and stuff like that. And you meet the well-groomed account manager in an accounting firm. I see some people nodding. You've been through this. And the premise there is the creatives are people that you can't possibly be and they're locked away because they have, some, they have something you don't. Reject that. It's, 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 it's bunk. I've been in this field for 20 years. I can tell you, these are, these are learnable skills. How do you learn them? What do you do? Step one, um, assemble the right team. Assemble an innovation team that is both interdisciplinary and foster the creation of T-shaped people. Let's take those things in reverse order. What's a T-shaped person? A T-shaped person, and we use the metaphor of a T literally, a T-shaped person is someone who has a depth of expertise, okay? You know, know-nothing middle managers are, are, are gone. They disappeared in the 80s, right? You need to know something. You're deep in accounting. You're deep in finance. You're all about engineering. You're an electrical engineer. You're a software engineer. You're a chip designer, okay? You know something. You've got a depth of expertise that is your path to move upwards into the professional, into the professional world, okay? What's the leg of the T? The leg of the T is not being all things to all people. The leg of the T is honest appreciation and empathy for the other disciplines, okay? So I'm talking here about a software engineer who's really, really good at writing code, but has an honest appreciation, for example, of the needs and the motivations of a marketing person and a salesperson and a quality engineer, all right? Um, when you're hiring, 
And when you're growing talent as leaders in Silicon Valley or elsewhere, when you're interviewing, look for people who use the pronoun we more than they use the pronoun I, okay? Look for people who are proud of their achievements primarily by highlighting their own contributions as part of a team of people that they were really proud of, okay? That's an early indicator that you're looking at a T-shaped individual, okay? Um, you will not get much in the way of innovation from people who talk about how smart they are, and they might be super smart, and sort of um, subtly devalue the contributions of other people that were around them on the team or their boss or something like that, okay? So this sort of T-shaped uh, behavior is, uh, is, is really essential for uh, successful innovation teams, okay? I spent a lot of time working with David. David fundamentally on a program that he and I worked together last summer, he was fundamentally the business guy in a program. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the fact is he had an honest appreciation for the needs of the manufacturing engineers who were worried about the cost of the product that he put out, okay? So it's depth of expertise in an area and what I would call an honest and sincere empathy for um, other um, domains that are outside your own that can be cultivated in people, that can also be looked for in the hiring process. All right, so what do we recommend for an innovation team? You wanna do something innovative. You're, 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 thinking about, you're thinking about next generation data services for smartphones. You're thinking about, you're thinking about some really new, exciting um, uh, renewable energy programs. You're thinking about fostering um, you know, uh, products to decrease the cost of healthcare. Okay, there are just a tremendous number of wonderful domains that I'm sure you're either in or will be moving into when you graduate um, that, are, that, that are exciting and that all call for tremendous innovation. A little hard to read. Let me talk you through the text here. Um, I submit that, that in early stages for innovation, you need three voices on an innovation team, okay? And those voices come from T-shaped people who are open ultimately to unifying into a single voice in a single direction, okay? They're people who have strong points of view themselves but appreciate the existence of other people's point of view, all right? So what have we got? We've got the voice of business and business viability, the voice of technology, and the voice of the human, the, the, the voice of the, of the stakeholder, either the end customer or the person somewhere else in the supply chain who is, who, is imp, who is an important stakeholder in the business or policy success of your endeavor, all right? Let's talk about each of those, um, let's talk about business briefly, and then one of the things that David recommended is that we talk in some detail about how as business leaders, you can manage technical people to help foster innovation in highly technical organizations, okay? But let's start with business. What is the role of a business person on a, um, uh, on an innovation team, okay? Before we're getting into the details of implementation, before we're into, into all the sort of classic product management areas of rollout and so on, okay? A business person, and a lot of you may play this role, some of the, the, those of you that are still in school may play this role in the future. A business person does two things on an innovation team. First of all, um, a business person helps acquaint every single person on an innovation team, and for a small innovation team, we're often talking three to 10 people, helps acquaint and familiarize everyone adequately with the business landscape around the innovation challenge that you're facing, okay? Um, and this leads to the second Mythbuster statement I wanna make, which is that there's this myth that innovation thrives in what is called a green field, absent any boundaries, 
That's just wrong, and that's another notion that you should reject if you've ever heard it. Innovation thrives on constraints, and this, is, this goes to a topic that you mentioned a, a little earlier. Some of the most constrained cultures, and indeed constrained businesses, tiny broke startups with hardly any money, um, their cultures, India is one of them, we're opening up an office in Mumbai, it's what we're seeing some of the most, most impressive creativity and innovation coming out of India that I've ever seen in my entire life. And a lot of that has to do with scarcities in India driving really exciting innovation. It has to do with energy scarcity and resource scarcity and, 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 and capital market scarcity and so on. So keep in mind that in general, boundaries and constraints and limits are the friend of innovation. Okay, they help drive innovation, and any program from the outset should be operating under a clear set of boundaries and constraints from a business person on the current business landscape. Everybody on an innovation team should understand things like um, current market segmentation and the competitive landscape and the pricing and costing models and the ultimate marketing plan. Okay, so David on our program, um, part of his role was to act as an ambassador. Um, to the IDEO team, helping everybody develop this sort of shared conversance around business issues, okay? The other role that a business uh, person plays on many innovation teams, depending on the nature of what you're doing, is acting as a strategic advisor to the um, external partners that you're working with, okay? So again, using the project uh, that was related to crafting, the home crafting market that David and I worked on over the summer, David also acted as a strategic advisor to our client, building some quantitative um, spreadsheets to help better understand the potential of the proposals we were coming up with as compared to their existing product line. All right? So that's what, I mean, in brief, we could talk about this you know, for hours all afternoon, but in brief, that's what a, that's what a, a, a business person does. The inward-facing role of a business person is, as a, is to help familiarize everybody on an interdisciplinary team with business issues, the outward facing role is to act as a strategic advisor to partners as appropriate. Now, let's talk in a little more detail about, about technologists on innovation teams. Um, this is something that, 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 that David and I agreed would be an interesting thing to cover. It's very likely that all of you will be in a position of um, managing technologists and wanting to gain maximum value from technologists, engineers, scientists, technicians, okay, on innovation programs. Um, I want to make a couple of points here. Um, the first is, I'd like to draw a distinction between technology push and technology pull. And just to cut to the chase, I submit that the winners, and this has been consistent, this is one of the few consistent things over the 20 years I've had at IDEO where so much has changed. Um, Consistently, the winners are the ones who create a healthy tension between technology push and technology pull and consider both simultaneously. What does that mean in a little more detail? Technology push is a philosophy which says, um, let's take our existing assets, let's take our intellectual property, let's take technology that we've developed, and let's understand new domains of opportunity for that technology, all right? Let's identify new areas around the globe new geographic regions that might be interested. Let's identify new vertical markets where we might apply that technology. Let's identify, um, uh, let's identify new scenarios of use, okay? This is an incredibly important and viable um, uh, business model in and of itself in isolation. Who's the professor, David, that, that, that Andy sees? Ratcliffe. Who? Andy 
Radcliffe. So, so Professor Andy Radcliffe sees tech push as core to the majority, if not all, of the, um, of the, of the tech startups coming out of Silicon Valley. Okay? My personal poster child for technology push is Qualcomm. Some of you may have worked with them. They're a telecom company based out of San Diego. They have fantastic technologies. One is called CDMA. It's a wireless protocol. All right? Qualcomm said to themselves, we've got this fantastic wireless protocol. Let's push it into new domains. We were starting to saturate the United States. Let's push into Korea. Let's push into China. Okay? We're starting to saturate the telecom market in general. Let's push into new vertical markets. Let's push into medical instruments and devices, body-worn devices like cardiac monitors that broadcast their telemetry back to mission control centers. Okay? It's been a hugely successful model for them. Now let's contrast tech push with technology pull. Technology pull says, let's forget about technology and let's forget about what we own. Let's put business models and human beings at the center of our thinking. Okay? And let's think about important and relevant trends. Um, uh, demographic, economic, social, political, religious. Let's think about important emerging trends. And let's ask ourselves, what technology might be brought to bear on those trends that is relevant? Or more typically, what aggregation of technology might be brought to bear on those trends that is, that is relevant to this fundamental consumer demand, this fundamental human need? Okay, Poster child here. Longtime client of IDEOs, Procter and Gamble. Okay, sure they employ thousands of scientists, but they don't typically start with a given science, uh, with a given technology that they've developed, like a chemical formulation, and explore how to apply it. They typically start with fundamental human needs, like people hate ironing, or um, you know people want their clothes to last longer, um, and they ask themselves what technology can be brought can be brought to bear. Okay. Um, so, the interesting thing is, if you go back and look at my two poster children for these two trends, what's Qualcomm doing? Qualcomm is making a very hard push, is making a very hard move into technology pull. Qualcomm is hiring market researchers and anthropologists and human factors people like crazy in order to better understand some of the global social and economic trends, and they're coming up with a philosophy that includes organic development of technology, um, licensing and, um, and uh, outsourced technology development with a view towards increasing their quotient around technology pull. And similarly, Procter & Gamble, right about the time I started working with them, which is, a, which is about 12 years ago, they were moving this way. Okay? They had developed a certain technology for de-wrinkling garments, and, they said to them, and, and what they essentially said to IDEO was, where else can this technology be applied? How can we push this technology into new domains and, and, and maximize the investment that we've already put into this technology. Okay. Um, so let me, just, let me just show you a couple of examples of, of technology pull that I think are significant. Um, all of you have probably seen technology push. What's, what's hot these days? There's a, there's a technology that you've probably heard about, if not you will, called um, near-field communication, NFC. This is an important enabling technology for, um, uh, trans, uh, for um, transactions. Um, and mobile commerce, typically from a, uh, from a, from a cell phone, okay, from a mobile phone. So that, that's, uh, that sort of technology lends itself to saying, okay, there is an existing near-field communication technology. One of them, for example, is called Sony Felica. What else can we do with it? Where else can it be pushed? Okay, good, viable way to look at the world. Um, the first example I want to bring up for tech pull is entirely new mental models of authority and expertise, okay? I'm older than a lot of you guys. 
Um, and I can tell you that the mental constructs that the world has around authority and expertise have been turned on their head in the last 15 years and something that sociologists and historians are going to be studying forever, all right? Traditional models of authority, doctors, ministers, Consumer Reports magazines, okay, are losing power in favor of bottoms-up, ground-up authority from wikis and blogs and crowdsourcing. I mean, my God, look what's happened in Egypt, okay? Um, if anybody more than two weeks ago had any doubt about the importance of the inversion of authority, okay? Um, look at some of these examples. Um, public commissioning investigative reports on spot.us, live broadcasts from mobile web phones, um, a, a TV station based entirely on user-created content. So this is not a technology like a wiki or a blog or something like this. This is a fundamental human trend. And it, it, it is incumbent on us to ask ourselves, all right, what technology could be brought to bear by my organization or by the startup I'm creating or whatever um, to, 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 you know, to address this important trend? Um, another example, all the world's a pointer. Okay, this is not a technology, it's a trend, it's a new mental construct. It's a technology-driven construct because that's what I specialize in. We could talk about non-technology-driven constructs. People are expecting, they wouldn't put it to you this way, but people are expecting a virtual overlay to the physical world. And it's been fascinating for me to see this, to, 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 uh, to, to, to watch this grow. You know, 10 years ago, this thing called Yellow Arrow was really huge. And we all thought it was just amazing and very, very cool. I mean, 10 years just seems to have fly by, right? But the state of the art of, of, um, of uh, augmented reality 10 years ago was people would slap these yellow arrow stickers like in front of historic buildings in New York. You would, you would text message the serial number, the unique serial number on that yellow arrow into the yellow arrow company and you get a text message back which allowed you to read in just straight text about what you were looking at, okay? Now 10 years later, we've got things like Google Goggles that allows you to actually hold your phone you know, up in front of something and, um, and, see a, uh, and see a virtual overlay to the physical world, like the ratings of a given restaurant or something like that. Much of this is enabled by cloud computing. So here again, why are we bringing this up? We're bringing this up because this is an important technology pull um, mental construct. People are going to start to think of physical objects as tags and pointers to cyberspace. That's a very important trend, and it's only going to increase. Everybody's thinking about this. I'm working with State Farm Insurance right now. We, spend, we spent a lot of our time on my current project thinking about the previous trend I described to you, uh, which is you know, the notion of what happens to the insurance business um, in an era in which authority is inverted and access to information like actuarial tables has become completely uh, democratized. I want to pause there because that's the first major thing I wanted to talk about was this, well, let me just say a few more words about tech push and tech pull just to sum up. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about managing technologists and we're talking about managing engineers and how engineers need to behave on innovation programs. And so, again, the first point I want to make here is that one job of an engineer or a technologist managed by a business person, which most of you are, is to help evaluate important trends through a lens of relevant technologies in order to spell out business implications, large-scale social needs, important trends, and so on. Thoughts at this point? I want to pause here. Thoughts on tech push versus tech pull.
Make sense? Go ahead. It seems like when you talk about um, tech pull, a lot of it is maybe not limiting yourself to existing technology, and then you talk about using existing technology. At some point, you come up with here's a need, and what can we create to fill that need? You can. You can. You can use you can use tech pull to um, to drive major R&D decisions in an organization. And tech pull lends itself better to that than tech push. Tech push deals mostly with what's out today and what the emerging, what the, what the trajectories are of, say, this class of silicon chips and these nanomaterials and so on. Whereas tech pull leads you to think, all right, what are some important emerging trends? Um, uh, um, and and uh, what, what type of development and what sort of future technology is required for my organization to avail itself of those trends. Yes? In terms of your technologist, how do you think about making sure that um, the person telling, playing the technology role doesn't let their own personal toolbox define the boundaries of how they view technology mm -hmm. versus being curious and able to get up to speed on anything sure. down the pipeline? Sure. So technology is so vast that um, people are any technologist is limited by his or her toolbox. And I mean, there's, 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 there are a couple things you can do. First of all, you can hire people who are intellectually curious and open to constantly informing themselves on all kinds of emerging trends. So even though that is by definition a limited toolbox, people who are extremely focused and committed to a certain uh, type of technology or a certain type of implementation um, are incredibly important and valuable to any organization. You need people like that, but they're not good fits for, um, for, for innovation programs. So the first thing I would say is just staff carefully, right? Staff someone who's, who loves reading The Economist magazine and who's always interested in, 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 in broadly informing himself or herself. Also, keep your Rolodex really fat, full of experts, you know? Um, I mean, my dirty little secret is a lot of what I'm able to do is dig into my Rolodex, because I've been at this for so long. So when someone needs an expert on RFID chips, I've got a guy, right? And when someone needs someone who's, who's, who's an expert on artificial intelligence, I've got someone else. In every case, what characterizes those people is they know how to bring um, uh, interdisciplinary teams, interdisciplinary innovation teams, up to a shared level of familiarity without burying them in technical detail that they don't understand anyway. Other questions? Aren't most people's Rolodex is deep, not wide? What you're saying is Yeah, wide that's, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, you want to you you have a, a wide Rolodex. Yeah. Yeah, and of course that's easier and easier with information technologies these days. But you still have to have the right kind of person, you know, a good cultural fit that you can't necessarily figure out from really good or something like that. David? Could you talk a bit about when <coughs> When that person on the business side becomes a filter versus regenerative? Yeah, it's, we're going to cover that in the next section. Yeah, uh, that's a very important point because the business people and the technical people need to change their behavior depending on the phase of the program. Um, your behavior isn't static any more than the, than the development phases of the program are static. Okay, no other questions. We can go into that. So, I guess one. Um, Here's how I like to think about 
what I call the dynamic role of a technologist. And you could just as easily call this the dynamic role of a, um, of a business person. Okay. You're here because a lot of you are interested in leadership. Some of you are already in leadership. Um, in many cases, you're going to be managing heavily technical teams. Um, something that has been um, difficult for me uh, and, and that has been a personal transformation for me and that is incumbent on many of the technologists is what is, is to adjust your behavior, your patterns of behavior, what you say and what you do, depending on the phase of the program. Um, how many of you are engineers in the room? How many of you have an engineering background? Who saw the Tacoma Narrows video? Can you, can you describe it to everybody? Uh, so this happened in Washington State. Uh, there was uh, heavy crosswinds uh, around the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. The span, uh, pretty wide, uh, I guess, span of um, just that's where, where the bridge crossed, and um, the the wind hit the natural frequency of the bridge, yeah. and it started to. Well, first of all, they didn't design for that. Right? They they uh, understood the structural piece, and they they didn't design for this phenomenon. The resonances, yeah, called resonance, yeah. and so when the wind, actually, everything has a uh, a natural frequency. It's a physical thing, but once this thing hit the natural frequency of this bridge, it started to um, uh, oscillate, and uh, it uh, broke to pieces. Yeah, I mean the bridge is completed, and it goes crashing into this canyon below. You know, tears. Yeah, and the rebar gets torn open and things like that. So basically, all engineers have seen this video. Okay, and the message behind this video is: don't let this happen to you. Okay, be conservative, be risk averse, be safe, use big safety margins. And that's exactly as it should be um, when you're in the development program of uh, the, the development stage of a program. If I'm driving over a bridge with my family, I want it to be does have been designed by a professional engineer uh, with, uh, with 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 large safety margins. Okay. Uh, when I carry my laptop computer onto a plane, I want it to have been designed by someone who knows how to treat lithium batteries so that they don't explode. Okay. Um, but that. But fundamentally, engineering, and I'm an electrical engineer by training, both undergrad and grad, um, engineering is fundamentally a risk-averse profession. And that's the issue that needs to change for a successful and consistent innovation. Here's the deal. Um, this is a very qualitative graph that I've drawn. Um, these are three major phases of any program with the innovation elements highlighted. What do we do? We explore. We ideate, and then we develop. Now, if this were linear, this is 95% you know, of the project. This little block would go like all the way through that wall out the, you know, to the outside. Okay? Um, but these phases, these early innovation phases, are desperately important, and that's why I wanted to call them out. What's, and what's important is shown vertically and qualitatively here. So what's important when you're doing development? What matters is that you don't have another Tacoma Narrows. What matters is that your lithium battery doesn't explode and that your bridge doesn't fall into the canyon. Okay? So an attitude of feasibility and risk mitigation, which all engineers are trained in, and, and the, the field attracts people who are careful and want to mitigate risk, is of prime importance during the development phase. Okay? If, if I come up to Luis and he's got a circuit board that's almost done and it's got a ship, and I say to him, you know what, I just discovered a new chip that I think would do a better job for you, and I think you should switch over to it. Okay? 
I may be correct factually. It may be a better chip. It may be higher, higher processing power and, and use fewer watts. But it's a stupid thing to say because we're in development, okay? And we're going into regulatory testing. And we've got to get the thing out on the market in four weeks or six weeks. So I'm saying a correct thing, but at the wrong time, okay? Now let's talk about the inverse of that. This is where things really go wrong involving technical people in innovation generally, particularly in big companies. A question came up at big, about, around big companies. During the exploration phase, as if you are interested in leading innovation, you have got to figure out a way for people to extend disbelief for days or weeks during the exploration phase. And in particular, you've got to figure out a way for people to think about new technologies, new and emerging technologies, in terms of inspiration and opportunities, not in terms of the risks that they represent. Okay? For those of you that are not engineers, engineering training, which is important, is a great deal of it is around risk mitigation. Okay? If you're asked to deliver something, you pluck out the areas of risk. If you're asked to deliver a medical instrument, you say, okay, the, the, the fluid handling system is going to be problematic and this, this, you know, this sensitive analog electronics are going to be an issue. I'm going to pluck out those risk areas and I'm going to worry about them and I'm going to mitigate the risks with uh, analysis and iterative testing and iterative prototyping. That's great. That's as it should be. During the early phase of a program, you need to figure out a way for technical people and technical teams to think about emerging technologies in terms of the opportunity and in terms of the potential for inspiration of those emerging technologies and not in terms of the risks they represent. Okay? I'm talking about a cultural change here. I'm talking about a behavioral change that is born of people. I mean, what, what, is, what is culture? Culture is the result of, of, of how people, what people do and what they say in a given organization. I'm talking about people saying different things and doing different things as appropriate during different phases of the program. So the counterexample of, of, of what I mentioned, you know, the sort of hypothetical I gave with Louise, is this. Um, if during the exploration phase, Louise brings up a really exciting idea for a uh, mobile data service, and I say, you know what, there's a reason that's just never going to work, or the reason it would, it would just be too expensive to develop, Louise, or something like that, I may be correct. Okay, I may be, my statement may be rigorous and factually correct, but I'm saying it at the wrong time. Because what I need to do is create an environment in which disbelief is suspended for an extended amount of time. Okay, if, if you allow statements like, well, we tried that before and it doesn't really work, classic big company stuff, right? Or that's really risky, or hey, you know, that'll never get through management. Those statements may be true, but you can't allow that during the early phases of a program. Otherwise, you will definitely, definitely squelch innovation. You'll never get any fresh ideas, um, and you'll never bring anything disruptive to the market. And then, you know, again, qualitatively, in the middle, during ideation, what you want to manage is essentially equal importance to both of these styles of thinking. Right? So for example, you want to think about emerging technology or about business risk in the case of business, to take David's question from a little earlier. You want to think about, you want to think about those issues on one hand in terms of opportunities and inspiration for new products and new services and so on. And on the other hand, you want to honestly assess the risks inherent in, in the, say, the new business model or, or, or uh, latching onto some emerging technology. So. Um, what do technologists on an innovation team do, and how do I recommend you manage technologists during the innovation phase? Okay? 
Technologists should be helping everybody on an interdisciplinary team to understand a broad aggregation of emerging technologies. Technologists and business people, David's a great example, should act as coaches and teachers to the team. If they're acting as policemen during that, that early phase, you're in trouble, okay? Um, so when we developed a voiceover um, IP phone for Cisco, um, I think we did an extremely good job of doing two things. One was bringing um, the engineers, the scientists, all the technical people, as well as the marketing and human factors and business people out into the field to meet with a total of about 78 users in Europe and Asia and the US. And what I can honestly say is that some of the reason that, that some emerging technology was built into this new phone is because we created a careful environment in which uh, disbelief was suspended during early phases and, um, and we looked very honestly at, at technologies that you know, at that point were still emerging like e-ink, the technology used in a Kindle um, as, as candidate technologies for the, uh, for the phone. So I'd like to hear your thoughts just about this notion of your responsibility as leaders to foster a certain dynamic behavior of technologists, a behavior that shifts according to the stage of the program that you're in. It's easy to say, it is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Uh, sorry, again, but uh, yeah, it does seem like there's a stigma, especially early on in development, especially in the tech space, where people, we don't need business people, we don't want business people. Yeah. And then it's a later stage of development where there somehow arises a need or a realization that that's yeah. an important piece. And yeah. speaking more to the first part, as a business person coming out of business school, how do you, what is the value that you sell in those organizations earlier on? Or Coach and teacher. Yeah. I mean, if, if, uh, if people feel like, look, I'm going to write the best code in the world, and then, hey, you're a business guy, your job is to put a price on it and to manage the marketing activities. Okay? Um, that's okay. But if I'm saying that to you, I'm, I'm really missing a trick in terms of innovation opportunities. Because if you were around familiarizing me with emerging, um, emerging Web 2.0 business models, um, and familiarizing me with possible end markets and, and new scenarios of use of whatever technology I'm developing that I never even thought of, it's going to benefit me. Okay? Um, if, if I feel like you're going to cramp my style, you're going to be a policeman, you're going to slow me down, um, I'm going to avoid having business people in and I'm going to put technology on a pedestal and just sort of blithely assume the technology will sell itself. Part of the, part of the issue there is being a T-shaped business person and having an honest empathy and appreciation for the pressures and responsibilities of the technical people. And part of it is positioning yourself from the beginning as a supportive coach and teacher, uh, helping them to do their jobs better and get it, you know, get it right the first time. Other questions? Yeah, go ahead. So I haven't figured this out, though, but uh, so I managed a, uh, a software development program and and uh, because of obviously uh, resources, we started out uh, sort of using partners yeah. uh, outside. Yep. And it's a very difficult space because you don't want to give them too much control of the core technology, yeah. uh, but you need them to have a good understanding of your customer and what they're using. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it's, it was a problem for us, a big medical device company, and, and yeah. right, how do we handle that space? Um, I don't know if, uh, you know, as far as 
this sort of development curve, um, that they come in a little later on, right? Because this one resources need to be applied. And, and uh, I don't know, it's... Uh, so development resources, external development resources come in on the, lap, on the late part of that curve. Okay, you typically bring them in when development is happening. But other external resources can come in really early. And my recommendation is, there's a, there's a unique answer for, for every organization, mm -hmm. but my, my recommendation here is every company should have a strategy for innovation. And I mentioned this earlier, there are only, there are only three ways to innovate, okay? You can insource, um, you, can, you can insource innovation, right? Um, for those of you that watch GE, like, I don't know what it was, six years ago when ML took over, um, uh, one of the major initiatives he had was to shift the uh, innovation process to, in to, to, to uh, try to pump up internal and organic processes for innovation, okay? So how are you going to innovate? You can insource, you can outsource, right? You can hire companies like us or, or, uh, or McKinsey or someone like that to come up with creative solutions for you, and you can buy innovation, right? You can acquire innovation, Cisco style. It's a very, very successful model. Um, you can acquire, you can license, you can purchase, okay? So that's it for innovation. And what I would say is we'd have to get into the specifics of your business to understand when it's appropriate to bring in external resources, but it should be guided by a set of strategic principles around how you want to innovate, right? And I don't consider, I consider every single one of these fair game. And I could point to to um, companies that do that are extremely successful, um, at, you know, being 90% any one of these. You know, I can point to companies that do most of their most of their innovation through insourcing and in through you know through internal growth, that outsource most of their innovation to to design firms, and that and that innovate essentially by acquisitions and allow small companies to take the innovation risk. Um, they're all good workable models. So I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. 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 Other questions? Yeah. So um, what techniques or structures do you use either at IDEO, something specific that can point to really helping teaching and coaching people in the exploration and ideation phases to stay in that um, inspirational and opportunity focus rather than you know, you know, bringing negativity or risk Right. into the conversation. How do, you, how do you practically keep a team that's very interdisciplinary yeah. focused on that? Yeah. You, you lead by example, and you create a culture in which there are qualitative rewards for the right kind of behavior. I mean, I, I, I think you just need to look at simple economic-style incentives. They're not, it's not literally payment. You know, they're, they're, they're intangible incentives. But I think you just need to look at, uh, I think you just need to look at um, the fact that, I, th I think you just need to consider I mean, if you're me, you consider that human beings are entities that respond to incentives. And if the incentives are there for a particular type of behavior, you're going to get it. David will tell you, at IDEO, the incentives are there for, for when appropriate, suspended, um, extended suspension of disbelief. And if you come off as a cynic and a naysayer, in some organizations, you come off as smart, right? A hardcore technical organization, lots of PhDs built around academic rigor, you know, PhDs from a from a uh, from a uh, culture of peer review at, at universities. If you can if you can if you can spear someone else's idea and show why it's wrong, you win. Okay, that's important at IDEO. That comes into you know criticism comes into it, to it. But uh, if if you behave that way at the wrong time, no one's going to want you on their project at IDEO. 
So you get what you measure for and you get what you reward to a great extent. You can start by setting the right example yourself as members of leadership in organizations. What else can I tell you about? Okay. I want to talk a little about synthesis. This is the third point that, uh, that, that David wanted to make sure that uh, all of you came away with because he thought it was, it was an interesting thing that he had learned. So let's talk about inspiration and let's talk about, let's talk about managing that inspiration with a process called synthesis. How do you do it? Um, first of all, it's important to define terms. I defined innovation earlier. Um, it's kind of weird how many, you know, like CEOs and executives talk about innovation as an important plank in their strategy but can't actually define what they mean by innovation. Similarly, we talk about insp inspiration a lot. We'll be talking about inspiration in this section. Inspiration um, are people or things or events that influence the mind or the creative imagination. Okay, that's a very general definition. That's how we think of inspiration. They're people, they're events, um, they're things that influence the mind or the creative imagination. Now, one of the questions that came up earlier was, how can you be efficient? How can you innovate in a small organization? You've got a limited budget, you're in a hurry. Maybe you're creating a startup in your spare time and you have a full-time job. Um, here's what I think you should keep in mind. Um, you want to be ins if you want to innovate, you need to be inspired. Like I mentioned earlier, I know a guy you know, that, that comes up with a cool idea every eight minutes or whatever. Um, most people aren't like that. But all of us can be creative and innovative if we are inspired. And of the sources of inspiration I mentioned earlier, by far, by far the strongest one are other human beings, face-to-face -face contact with other human beings. Some of you work in B2C businesses, okay? Um, a visceral, um, a gut level appreciation for the needs of a diverse base of customers, not from reading white papers, not from reading market research, but from getting out in the field and understanding how people actually live and work and play, okay, is terribly important. Some of you work in B2B um, environments. Um, for that, forget the word end customer or end user, think about your stakeholders, okay? You work for a software company, it's a B2B firm. You work for SAP, somebody like that, fine. Let's get a visceral, let's get a heartfelt appreciation for the needs of the business decision makers and the technical decision makers and some of the end users that are gonna be using our software, okay? In either case, what you learn out in the field will surprise you. Don't kid yourself and think that you know what really goes on. Um, and the notion here is very simple. If we wanna be inspired, let's use our ability as human beings to listen to what people have to say and let's look at what they do, all right? Let's look at how they use their cell phones. Let's look at how they interact with software. Let's look at how they use emergency services. And let's use those observations of patterns of speech and, 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 and modes of behavior to project and imagine how people are thinking and how people are feeling. So I want to distinguish when you're taking in information early in an innovation program, I want to distinguish between um, Classic research, which is essential and terribly important. This is something that David did a wonderful job commissioning um, from two different um, market research uh, sources at the beginning of the program we worked on. That's, that's essential background for the team. But I don't think you would say that it inspired us. 
It informed us, and it was important for that reason, but it didn't inspire us. What inspired us was getting out into the field, speaking to crafters, and seeing how they use various types of crafting equipment. So I'll give everybody a minute to just read this off the screen to, to drive home the distinction between qualitative research intended to inspire and quantitative research intended to inform. Okay, so what's an example here? Um, Shimano, a lot of you are probably bikers. Shimano makes really nice hubs and gear sets, a lot of, um, a lot of bike parts. Shimano asked us um, to think about new opportunities in biking. And um, one of the things we discovered, and you know, when you look back on these things, obviously in, two, you know, in retrospect, you can armchair quarterback yourself and say, oh, intuitively that should have been obvious. We had no idea how many tens of millions of Americans there were who really want a bike. Um, they have happy memories of bicycling when they were kids, but they're intimidated by the state of bicycling today. They're intimidated when they walk into a bike shop. They're intimidated by the way the bikes look, the carbon fiber book looks. They're intimidated by the ripped guy in Lycra, you know, that, that, uh, that's selling them the bikes. And they don't want any part of it, right? And so one of the things that came up was um, uh, how can we gain, how can we use needs-based um, insights from the field to come up with a new type of bike? And what we came up with in this case was what's called the coaster bike. You know, and I could point to a lot of simple little observations. Um, this is an early sketch of one of the bike seats. People would say, look, it's, you know, biking seems good, but it really hurts when I have my wallet and my cell phone. So we created, I can show it to you at IDEA, we created a bike seat that opens up with just enough room for a wallet and a cell phone so you can take those out of your pocket and stick them into the bike seat. You know? And there are a whole lot of little things like that. The, uh, the, 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 the brakes are not hand brakes, you just pedal backwards to brake. There's an automatic transmission, which was the Shimano technology, which adjusts the torque, uh, which, which, which adjusts the gear, the gearing ratio based on the torque on the, on the, um, on the chain and so on. So what the point here that I want to make is that the, the, um, the coaster bikes, which they came out with, were entirely inspired by field research that we did. There weren't any white papers or anything that told us, hey, there are 10 million tens of millions of Americans that are intimidated by the state of biking and that want something simpler. I don't know how we would have come to this, um, uh, uh, I don't know how we would have come to this observation or to, or to this conclusion without, um, uh, without going out in the field. So now let's talk about synthesis. This is the last point that David wanted me to make and I, I wanted to talk about how we gather information before I talk about synthesis. So let's imagine that we've done what I described, right? You've created a small team of T-shaped people. You have a voice of the human, you have the, you know, the, the voice of the user, you have the voice of business or policy, and you have the voice of technology. You've gone out in the field, you've read some white papers, you've talked to experts, um, you've, uh, uh, you've, you, you've done some field research. Um, and to, again, to the question that came up earlier about, about in innovating on limited means, this can be done very quickly and very inexpensively. This is, I'm not talking about commissioning six months of research. Um, the type of activities I'm talking about here take weeks, not months. What's next? The next thing to do is to use your inspiration to visualize possibilities. And that's the idea of synthesis. So here's the, here's the premise. 
if we want to innovate, if we want to come up with something new, we're going to take in a lot of concrete data. So if this is time, and this is relatively more concrete information, and this is more abstract, we're going to take in a lot of data. Some of it is intended to inspire. Some of it is intended to inform. Whatever the case, it's a bunch of tangible inputs. Okay? What do we want to come out with? Um, we want to come out with concepts that win in the market. People misapply qualitative needs-based user research of the sort that I described a little earlier. You need to be careful of this. People draw a short circuit from here to here. Okay? I guarantee you it won't work. If, um, if uh, Luis is trying to come up with uh, a new software package for the medical instruments that, he's, that his company is developing, if he asks stakeholders what they need, and some, one person says, well, I need a different kind of home screen, and someone else says, I need this sort of button. If he takes that stuff literally, these inputs literally, and he just uses them to create an engineering requirement spec and implements them, things aren't going to work. You must veer into a layer of abstraction in order to innovate successfully. Okay? And that's what synthesis is. Synthesis says, Let's take all the inputs that we've gained in trying to understand what the opportunities are like. And you are doing your job right if you get divergent inputs. If one person says, this home screen is too complicated, and the other says, it's too simple, it needs more features, you're doing your job right because you're finding these irreconcilable differences, and it's going to be your job to reconcile them and to, and to find a happy medium between them. Okay? So here are the inputs. This is... Um, the process of synthesis leads to insights, which in turn leads to design principles, which in, in turn leads to concepts. What are some examples of each of these? Okay. Um, the insights that David and I put together and the rest of the team on this crafting project were this. We created some um, personas who were amalgams of some of the most common and consistent user needs that we saw in the field for five different types of crafters. Okay, um, And we identified two of those personas as targets. It's a fairly common marketing method, right? We identified two of those personas as ideal targets for the organization. Okay. Um, you know, the insights for the bike project that I showed earlier had to do with the, the hesitation that so many Americans felt about biking, okay? From the insights, you come up with design principles, um, and then you know that the concepts that you come up with have been guided by a synthesized set of, um, of inputs. So our, the point of our talk is about the how of innovation. How do you synthesize, all right? So here we are. There's seven of us, right? And we're trying to, um, oops, and we're trying to uh, um, get all of our uh, all of our insights into some kind of actionable form. So, what's synthesis? Synthesis says, let's take all this input, let's 
find direction and make meaning from all this disparate input that we've got. So I will tell you exactly how we do it at IDEO. And I, you know, obviously I'm not saying that you should graph this method into your organization, but what you may want to do is, is take some of the general principles and, and apply them as appropriate. Um, take a you know, three to five person innovation team, say everybody in this first row. We all sit together having done some field research. We've read some white papers, we've gone out in the field and we've talked to stakeholders. Take post-it notes. We, our, our goal, other issues aside at IDEO, is to keep 3M in business with post, with, uh, with the, you know, keep them in business with post-it notes. Each of us writes down key points and key inputs, or, or key insights rather, from the research that we've done, okay? So David's met somebody in the field. He writes down six, eight, 10 signature details of that individual to help us understand who that person is. The single best way to be inspired is to meet someone in the field who's a potential user of your product or service. A close second is to have your colleague who's di who did the same research off the same research plan tell you about the person they met, show you a digital camera image of who it is, and put a bunch of notes up. In much the same way that a novelist never gives you a complete, you know, extended labored picture of a character in a novel, a novelist gives you a few carefully chosen key signature details that add up to a complete and holistic picture, you want to try to do the same thing. You want to try to give the signature details of the people that you met so that we really understand who they are, how they're behaving, what their motivations are, questions like what are their attitudes towards technology, uh, what are their, how much media they consume, these, these sorts of things, okay? So step one is absorb the stories, okay? Uh, Get, um, uh, and um, tell stories from the field. So in this case, the six of us, say, would put post-it notes on the wall. We'd cover, you know, potentially all these walls, sharing with we, each other who we saw in the field, okay? This is not, an ex this is not a lengthy process. Next, um, the best I can tell you, the best thing I can tell you in synthesis is look for repetition, okay? Let's imagine that in aggregate, all of this, this group here meets 16 people total. You think, how could you possibly base a major decision on 16 people? The answer is, you choose the right people. You choose a set of attributes that are important to you, orthogonal attributes of people, okay? Typical attributes might be um, age and life stage, socioeconomic level, attitudes towards technology, um, uh, you know, are they, and then you get into more specifics. Are they heavy media consumers? Are they crafters? Um, uh, you know, um, do they have high engagement or low engagement with money? Whatever it is. And then we might decide that David is going to go out in the field and he's going to find um, a senior citizen who has, um, uh, high, who has a lot of knowledge about technology but very, very low engagement with media. Okay? That's a rather interesting profile. By Searching a, specific, a, a, a sufficiently broad set of people, even if it's a rather small number, you would be amazed how often quantitative research performed with a thousand or more people often bears out the results of qualitative research. And I'll tell you that with, say, eight or 10 or 16 well-chosen people who are orthogonal to each other across a number of attributes, right? They're distinct from each other around a number of personal attributes. I'll tell you what. If you've, if, you've, if you've met 12 people in the field and you're trying to innovate for them all and you, and you identify a particular theme or opportunity or area of interest of, say, eight or nine of those 12, that is significant. That matters. Forget the fact that it's not statistically significant. 
it's, it's important. Um, all right, so that's all to, to justify step two, which is identifying patterns. Um, next, extract the key insights. So now we're out here. Now we're thinking about insights and design principles. This is really, really hard because you feel like whatever you're coming away with is really trite. We did a project. We worked for six weeks doing research for a, West, for a uh, southern, a South Korean uh, telecom called SK Telecom on the use of, um, of uh, how, what, how mobile phones could serve the needs of tourists, pleasure travelers, better. Okay? Did research in Asia, Western Europe, US, tons of synthesis. One of, the, one of the insights that we presented to them, we stood up and said, there is an underserved appetite for authentic and personalized travel advice. Of course there is. What a ridiculous and trite thing to say. But the fact is, there was lots of thinking and lots of interviews and lots of information gathering behind that. And the insight was essentially a headline you know, or the tip of an iceberg to a lot of knowledge that had been gained by the team. Last point I want to make, this speaks to this issue that came up about innovating in big companies. Craft your message, okay? It's tempting to believe that having done field research and synthesis and some brainstorming and identified an exciting direction, it's tempting to believe that the idea will sell itself and that people will immediately see the benefits of the idea. This particularly happens if you're personally excited about your idea, okay? Guess what? That doesn't happen. And the message needs to be crafted in an appropriate way. For what I'm telling you here, PowerPoint's a good message. PowerPoint isn't always the right way to go. Sometimes you want to pay a graphic artist to sketch up a storyboard to describe the key touch points of a new service. Okay? Sometimes you want to film a quick video to simulate the actual experience you're describing. Sometimes you want to bring in someone who's an expert in Flash, the software, to, uh, to assemble a, um, a simulation. Okay? Um, but just be aware that crafting the message, particularly in a large company where things has to go through layer after layer of management and toll gate review after toll gate review, crafting a message is, terribly, is terribly important. The last point I'll make quickly is synthesis leads very naturally into brainstorming. Okay? I don't think brainstorming is a very good idea in the earliest stages of the program because you don't know where the opportunities are yet. If we're going to ask six, eight people to get together and to brainstorm, and a brainstorm is a structured means of rapid idea generation, we want to make sure that we have an appropriate target. We want to make sure that we've got a framework of opportunities and we've done our needs-based research so we have an idea of where to focus people's attention. Hey, we want everybody to brainstorm on this sort of next generation data service. Hey, we want to fo everybody to focus on, 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 on this approach to um, uh, clinics in um, emerging economies, whatever it is. All right, um, one quick example from, um, I mean, I couldn't tell you in 20 years at IDEO the coolest project I've ever worked on, but I can tell you the biggest honor, and it was this, for sure. Um, a quick example of, of observation leading into synthesis was a program for NASA um, on how to improve spacesuits. Um, they, they called and they said, you know, can you, uh, can, can you work with us to help understand how to improve spacesuits for the next generation of lunar and Martian exploration? And I, I kind of thought, well, yeah, <laughs> I'm willing to, to work on that. Um, so um, I, I told NASA that um, the work had to be done on our terms. That is, uh, it had to be done using IDEO's approach to, uh, to innovation. And we needed to speak to multiple stakeholders. And just to cut to the chase, I walked into a room. It was about this size. And I couldn't really believe it until I actually showed up that we were able to coordinate all this. Um, with the help of leadership at NASA, we got astronauts from three generations of space travel. We got uh, men who walked on the moon, men who were in Skylab in the 70s, 
and people who, and, and uh, men and women who had been to the International Space Station. We even got this dapper guy in his 70s who designed the spacesuits for the Apollo astronauts. He was the design engineer. And his name, true story, is Joe Cosmo, <laughs> <laughs> which I just love. Okay, so this is an example of, um, of the innovation process in action. Um, spacesuits are a disaster. Um, when I got into one, the only thing you can think of when you get into a spacesuit is how soon you can get out of the thing. Picture a ski boot, not a snowboarding boot, but for those of you that have parallel skied, a ski boot that doesn't fit you, and then like extend that over your whole body. It's like the worst feeling you can possibly imagine, you know? Um, or if you wear contact lenses, imagine a, contact, a hard contact lens with a piece of dust under it where all you can think about is getting it out of your eye, okay? That's how a spacesuit feels. Um, and just to cut to the chase, it was a wonderful program. One of the things we concluded was that in the 10 plus year time frame, um, material science was still a long ways away from solving the challenge of creating something that was more comfortable, had improved situational awareness, and was safer in consideration of all the things a spacesuit has to do. It has to be a pressure vessel. It has to keep astronauts cool when they're in the sun, warm when they're in the shade. Uh, it needs micrometeorite protection. Um, it needs to provide air and, and, and other nutrients. It has to monitor a lot of physiological processes. And the, um, through the process of talking to astronauts and through the process of um, brainstorming with them and being art directed by them, the particular insight in this case was, you know, we can make some improvements to spacesuits, but the, really the right answer is to create something that provides a lot of the most important attributes of a spacesuit, like situational awareness but allows astronauts to work in a shirt sleeve environment. So what we came up with was a, um, uh, these are some of the early sketches that we made of a very small pressurized rover that would allow astronauts to work um, inside of it, but would allow them to slip in and out of the spacesuits very, very quickly in 10 minutes rather than the hour uh, that, um, that, uh, um, that it takes today. And, if you saw some of the sketches a second ago, you can see, if you look at the actual prototype, on the left, it's, it's being presented at President Obama's inauguration, and on the right, it's being tested in Arizona. You can see that the, the actual prototype is pretty close to some of the earliest sketches that we made as a result of brainstorming and synthesis with this, uh, with this team of, of, um, of astronauts. Um, so I'm going to stop there. Um, I'd like to know what questions you have or comments you have about the process of synthesis. Yeah. So you mentioned that you worked with uh, Francisco and, and other large companies. Yes. I'm curious, curious how you worked with them and the reason is that this morning in this room we heard Steve Blank say when you do a startup, the founder needs to do all the stakeholder analysis they can outsource it to uh, consultants because everything's going to go wrong. Yeah. So, um, the, in general, if you're outsourcing professional services, the more upstream you are, the more upstream your outsourcing activity is, um, the more what we call radical collaboration is essential. So I agree with that statement if the professional services are managed wrong, okay? If the founders of a startup commission a market research firm to identify the market, come up with some concepts, and then come back with, quote unquote, the answer, 
and they disappear for six weeks and come back with something, I guarantee, I, without knowing any more details, I guarantee you it'll be a failure, okay? The only way to outsource successfully on early upstream programs is through what we call radical collaboration. And what distinguishes radical collaboration from other types of collaboration is this. In radical collaboration on innovation programs, shared generative activities occur, okay? What that means is that um, uh, in the start, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, hypothetical you just gave, the startup identifies particular points of engagement with the firm that they've outsourced some innovation activities to. They spend a day with them, two days, three days at all the key points, all right? And if you go on that shared process of discovery, you're going to be okay. It's when external entities go open loop during early stages that you get into trouble. This rule doesn't apply once you get more into implementation, right? You can, um, we have successfully created engineering requirement specs and detailed specifications, shipped those overseas, and gotten very good code back from people that we've never met in Bangalore, okay? That's possible once things are unambiguous and defined. Um, early in the process, it isn't. So back to specifics, if you think about these phases I've just described, we always include our clients uh, going into the field with us to do the field research, okay? We include them and they have what we call a seat at the synthesis table. They're sitting with us in brainstorms. That's, that's essential. Other questions? And I think, well, let me just say, on those terms, I don't agree with what the, with what the, the gentleman said this morning, but given an open loop situation where you just commission research and people walk away and do it, I agree. If you're going to run it that way, then, then the founders of the organization really need to um, really need to do it. One last question as a group, and then I can I can stay after. Go ahead. Um, I think we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs sure, in the yeah. audience. I was wondering if you think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm wondering if you could, since working at IDEO, you're coming from a consulting angle. Yeah. So yeah. Then problem definition and the scope of your design projects is essential, right? Yes. And I'm wondering if you were to put take off the IDEO hat and put yeah. on the entrepreneur hat yep. and you don't have a client coming to you, how you would think about scoping your project yeah. at the start if it's not brought your, your sure. way? Does that make sure. sense? Yeah, yeah. I would take a cue from uh, venture capitalists. When you, you guys talk to venture capitalists all the time. Uh, Every venture capitalist has a different approach. Many of their approaches are very divergent. There is only one thing that every single VC anywhere that you'll ever meet in the world agrees on, which is this. So if I take off my IDEO hat uh, and, I, and, I, and I leave IDEO today and I start a business, I start with the right team. I start with an interdisciplinary team of people with a track record of success, and preferably people who have, if we're, if we're talking about a startup, people who have um, provided returns to, uh, to um, venture capitalists in the past, right? You got a team of people that have two successful startups under their belt and have returned handsome returns to venture capitalists in the past. That means something about that team of individuals. So you, first of all, you identify a team that can execute. That's fundamental, that's basic, that's table stakes. I would happily choose a team of people that can execute with no product concept over something with a, you know, a, a, a team I felt less good about, but 
an idea that excited me. Okay. Next thing down, right? You identify the market. Let's identify the right market. Let's identify a market with the right dynamics. It's got to be growing, and it's got to support. Uh, uh, in many cases, it's got to support value pricing. Okay. We don't want to enter something commodity. And after that, let's think about the product. Let's think about the concept, knowing that. Um, most VCs don't pay that much attention to the concept. They know the basic concept could easily morph three or five or seven times during the first years of the startup's existence. But they're confident that a good, that a good team will get them there. So that's what, that's what I would do. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.